who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Wander with us into a world of magic. Do you lack magic? Where old stories take on a new life and the world is teeming with possibilities. Well, for the last time, we're not kissing, Fritz. Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with. Okay, Gown. Let's do this. And reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. Ready for your next adventure? Then we'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales. Hey, hey, it's Caitlin Bailey here. I am the founder and executive director of Old Pros and the host of the Oldest Profession podcast. If you support sex worker rights, then learn more about our history. The Oldest Profession podcast reminds listeners that sex workers have always been a part of the story. Every episode focuses on an old pro from history, contextualizing that figure in their own time and connecting their story to the ongoing struggle for sex worker rights. Episodes of the podcast are available on all streaming platforms, and you can always get more information about our sources and subjects by visiting our website, oldprosonline.org. Hello, and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster, and this is season five. So it's great to be back here doing a full season. Arguably, I could say the three-part Fredigan super specials was kind of a season, but just technically I'm going to call those specials. And this is an official season with a topic, with a theme. And this theme slash topic is... Well, it's the, we're looking at stories from around the world, but the official name is Vulgar History Internationale, Scandaliciousness Without Borders, Tits Out Sans Frontier. This bilingual title really, it's a great title, I agree, um, but also it really says what we're going to be talking about because the first part, Vulgar History Internationale, we're going to be looking at stories from a variety of different countries inspired by... You, the listeners, a.k.a. the Tits Out Brigade, I've been learning more about where you're from and who some of the people from your countries are, and I really have really been enjoying learning all about all that stuff, and I'm excited to share it with everybody. Scandaliciousness Without Borders is part of 
what I think is going to become pretty evident, like from this, from episode one, that the sort of tits out scandaliciousness that we have looked at in the previous four seasons, largely centered in England, is not, that was just kind of where we happen to be. But frankly, there's people doing scandalous things everywhere. And honestly, the universality of some of these experiences are, it was, it was uh, interesting for me to realize how how international some of the things that happen are like there's always kind of like some sort of like fucked up patriarchy there's always someone being like a woman with power she must be a witch like it's all just like no matter where you are so scandaliciousness without borders and then also the third part of the title tits out sans frontières which is french for tits out without borders but what i take that part to mean as well is to really talk about how the tits out ishness is really not limited to um, cisgendered women or even to people who like to pull out a tit. Like the fact that it's anyone can be tits out. Doesn't matter where you're from, what kind of person you are, your gender, your sexuality, any of it. Like tits out is for everybody. So in this season, we will be sharing stories from across, as I count them, five continents, uh, I believe 16 countries, um, asterisk. There's not going to be 16 episodes because your girl does not have time for that, but there will be less than 16 episodes, but 16 countries because some of these people move around. We're going to be telling the stories this season of um, cisgender women. We're also going to be talking about people of other genders, and we're going to get to that. It's more coincidentally, we're going to be doing this as per every season chronologically and it just so happens that the we're going to be clearing it up more in the second half of the season so like stay tuned for that this topic and direction again was inspired by you the tits out brigade because you are all kinds of people from all different places and i want to honor you all by sharing stories of people from where you're from and people who are in some ways like you all that being said this podcast is frankly about storytelling and honoring these historical people while also telling a really good and scandalous story. And I've got, I love that we're kicking off with this story. It's got a little bit of everything. Um, oh, I did fill this up, but I forget now. Um, so I made a Vulgar History bingo sheet. You can find it. It's on the Vulgar History Instagram, which is Instagram at Vulgar History Pod. I think I also put it on the Twitter. And I think it's for sure on the Patreon, patreon.com slash Writer. Anyway. Again, with the help of the Tits Out Brigade, I made this bingo sheet of just things that happen a lot in these episodes. And I feel like this, I don't know if I got a bingo. I want you to play along if you feel like that and tell me how you do. I don't know if I got a bingo when I was just kind of doing it from memory. But we've definitely got at least like six to seven bingo squares crossed off here. So it's really a great vulgar history story. And this is someone I never had heard of. I don't know if I would have heard of this person except for... Tits Out Brigade member Simran suggested this person. And when I started researching, I was just like, oh, hell yeah, this is great. And then um, I got some help as well from Tits Out Brigade member Chloe, who helped suggest some resources for me to read and answered some of my questions. So we're kicking off this international season with an iconic queen that maybe you haven't heard of either, but you're about to, and it is Rani Ditta of Kashmir. So references. And these are all in the show notes as well as per ever. Um, so I read a bunch of stuff about her as much as I could find. Frankly, 
not a lot but honestly that's like part of this show is finding people who sound so cool and yet there's not a full-length biography of them anyway so i read um, a piece from feminisminindia.com um swarajamagazine.com livehistoryindia.com kashmirblogs.wordpress.com as well as some books which are all listed in the show notes as well so where does this take place well the story takes place in the 10th century in the kingdom of kashmir where this is on a current map and there's a lot of current events happening in kashmir um and the in the 10th century the kingdom of kashmir was um in around the same place as the contemporary region known as kashmir still is so to locate us i'll put a map on instagram too i think just so everybody can really get the visual so we're in south asia and where the kingdom was it's in the himalayan mountains and so where the kingdom was now i don't know how to describe this it's like where the kingdom was is now if you look at a map today um you're gonna it's part of modern day india modern day pakistan modern day tibet modern day afghanistan and modern day china um and that's all kind of I'm saying when you look at a map, because that's what a map will say, but people from those countries might say something different. It's a place that is very much under a lot of conflict about what country is it in. But we're looking at the 10th century and what country it was in doesn't matter. It was the kingdom of Kashmir in the mountains, beautiful valleys, lakes and rivers, lots of farming going on. And so this is again, where we find just kind of commonalities between this and other stories. And I'm going to, because I'm coming at this from my, like, having mostly studied Western Europe brain. Like when I make a connection, I'm like, oh, it's like this and this and like other stories. So having listened to other episodes of the podcast, I'm going to try and relate it back to other episodes. So you'll kind of see what the connections are that I'm thinking of. Um, So like when we looked at, for instance, the story of iconic Fredegund, which was in kind of modern day France, but it was like the Frankish kingdoms. It was like Neustria and I forget the names of the other ones, but so it's the same sort of thing. So there's the kingdom of Kashmir and all around it are all other little kingdoms and the kingdoms are all kind of like sometimes in alliance with each other and sometimes at war with each other. Each has its own king. So a similar sort of situation. Um, Also in this place and time, 10th century kingdom of Kashmir, uh, the dominant religion was Hinduism although there were also strong Buddhist influences, the language that everybody was speaking, I think, well, the people in the story who are royal people, um, was Sanskrit. And so I will be using Sanskrit words on occasion in the story where they make sense, like where that word is just the best word rather than choosing kind of an English word that doesn't mean quite the same thing. Um, For instance, the name of this woman, Rani Ditta. So her name is Ditta, that's her name. And Rani is a Sanskrit title that means basically queen but she was a rani that was her thing so it's like how in the donya anna eye patch it's like she was a lady but we say donya because that's like how spanish people did it so rani did a so a bit more background stuff just because you need to know who recorded the story of ditta because unlike i think in any other episode like this writer is going to come up and that's because he's the only person who wrote about her um other people have since but it's all based on his writing so this was a guy named kalhana so he also lived in kashmir but like 200 years later after the events of Ditta's life and he 
decided to write a chronicle about all of the history of Kashmir. And this is in a work that is called, I wrote down the pronunciation for myself, um, Raja Tarangani is the name of the chronicle. So it's literally the only source there is about the life of Dedda. So we're relying on Kalhana's work exclusively. Um, and that work is obviously written in Sanskrit. So I'm personally relying on the resources I mentioned and the books in the show notes who are people who interpreted that. And then I read those English language sources because I am a basic bitch who only speaks English. So the thing with Kalhana is I feel like we can trust him. Like so often with these sources, who is the one who wrote the mean things about Cleopatra? Like sometimes it's like the only person who wrote about them was their like arch enemy. Oh, that's the Fredigand thing, right? Because it was all that guy who liked Brunhilde. Anyway, so, you know, I'm skeptical sometimes when there's just one source about a woman. But the thing with Kalhana is that his work is known to be like brutally honest to the point that scholars are like, what was this guy about? Like usually these chronicles were paid for by the kings. And so the people writing the chronicles had to be really nice about past monarchs because those were maybe like the ancestors of the current king. But Kalhana, I'm going to say, and this is like our tits out sans frontiers. He was just like tits out in his writing. He was just like, here's what fucking happened. Like, like, I'm just going to tell you the truth. Like, I'm not going to spin it. Like, here's what we know. So Kalhana, he's going to be kind of like a supporting character in this story. So Kalhana truly gave zero fucks and seemingly told the truth. And so I appreciate that about him. A historian named PNK Bumzai wrote, that in Kalhana's history, there are no heroes or heroines. Indeed, whether we love them or not for their virtues, it is their vices which make them unforgettable. And with that in mind, Ronnie Ditta. So she was born in 924, 10th century, in the kingdom of Lohara, which is a kingdom that was near Kashmir. They were on a trade route near Kashmir. Her father was named... Simharaja, and he was the king of Lahara, so she was the princess. Um, so this is a royal story. So not only was she a princess because her father was a king, but also she was the granddaughter on her mother's side of Bhima Deva Shahi, who was one of the Shahi family of Kabul. So the Shahis, this is super important. Um, they were a dynasty that held sway over this whole region at this time. They were a Hindu family. The Shahis were just like, I don't know who's a contemporary comparison or even one from a previous episode. It's kind of like, maybe it's like the Queen Margot episode. It's like her mother was Catherine de Medici. So like the Medicis were about it. Um, anyway, the Shahis were just like being a granddaughter of them meant that she was not as powerful as being the king's daughter, but the granddaughter of like these super powerful influential people. Kalhana doesn't write anything about Dida's youth or young childhood because Kalhana wanted to get to the good stuff, and so am I. What we do know about Dida, though, is that she, um, I think from early on, had some sort of physical disability in her legs. So we know this because Kalhana refers to her with a Sanskrit word, charanhina, which means footless, effectively. So she had some sort of leg slash foot issue, something that affected her walking, so maybe polio, um, I don't know, maybe just like a club foot, like she had some sort of physical disability. She could walk, but she also had a woman, I don't know if this is a servant, I'm assuming this is a servant, or like a lady-in-waiting situation. It was not, I don't know, maybe it's a hired staff member, I do not know. 
but there's a woman called Velga who would carry her around. Um, one detail that Kahana tells us is that Velga would also carry Ditta in running competitions, which is fascinating to me. First of all, what was his competition? Second of all, how fast did Velga run? Third of all, like, I assume Ditta won. Like how when, um, what's his name? Nero would do the, in like ancient Roman times, he made them all have Olympics, but then he made everybody let him win. Anyway, I don't know. So Ditta had some sort of leg issue, but she also would compete in running competitions and love that for her. So unusually in these stories for a princess, Ditta was still unmarried by age 26. So I don't know why that is. And that does happen in some other stories sometimes. But given who her family is, I don't know if it's like they're so powerful. People were like, like the family wouldn't think anyone was good enough for her. Or if, I don't know, maybe they thought there's some information here later about like how people with physical disabilities were looked at. So maybe people didn't want to marry her. Not sure. Anyway, she was unmarried, age 26. And then one day, the family received an offer of marriage from Kasima Gupta, the king of Kashmir. And at this time, Ditta's family, well, her father, like Lohara, but then also her grandparents, the Shahis, much more powerful than Kasima Gupta and his family, even though he was a king of Kashmir. Um, Lohara was in a much better situation than Kashmir, and that is because Kashmir was in turmoil and had been for decades. This was largely because of a group of very unpleasant landowners who are referred to by Kalhana and now by me as the Damaras or the Damaras. This is a word that means basically a landlord, but it means a bit more than that. And also these guys are so much their own thing. Like we're just going to go with the word and I'm just going to make a judgment call that it's the Damaras. So these assholes had been causing chaos in Kashmir for decades by now. And if you're like, Anne, why are you calling these people assholes? Like you don't know the cultural context of it. And it's like, I do because Kalhana wrote about them. And he was writing in Sanskrit, so he used different words. But he told it like it is, and he clearly explains how the Damaras were the worst. He says they were ill-mannered and uncultured, but they put on airs and acted they were better, like they were better than they were, and just generally inserted themselves in royal business. And they kept things in chaos because they kept switching allegiances. Um, like they would support one king, then they'd support somebody else, and that person would take over as king, and then they would switch to another person. Like they really held the balance of power and they were just making everything a mess because there was constant rebellion and kings were being usurped way too often for any sort of stability. And this is for literal decades and it's all just because of these assholes, the Damras. For instance, a year before Kasima Gupta asked if he could marry Ditta, a man, well, his father, Parvagupta, became king. So Parvagupta... Um, became king by killing the previous king, who was a boy. I'm not sure how um, this came about, but he killed the boy previous king by weighing him down with rocks and throwing him in a river. So that's that's how Parvagupta became the king. So he basically threw the king in the river, proclaimed himself the king, um, but then Parvagupta died within a year of sounds like heart disease type issues, which given the kind of high stress way of life, that seemed to be going on among people who want to usurp and be the king could make sense, you know, stress and whatever. At the same point, there's going to be a number of mysterious deaths in this story. And I don't think Kalhana theorizes this as murder, but I'm going to, because that seems suspicious. 
So Parvagupta was king for like not even a year. And then his son took over. The son is Kasimagupta. So this is kind of the chaos that was already going on. Like Kasimagupta was the king, had just taken over because his father died of quote unquote heart disease after having killed the previous boy king by throwing him in a river. Like somehow the Demeras were profiting off of all this chaos. And I don't understand how or why, but that's the sense I get. Anyway, so Kasimagupta is just like, fuck, I'm the king. The thing about him was he would not have expected to become king at this point because his father had like literally just taken over. Um, allegedly, according to Kalhana, Kasimagupta had been known as a bit of a dirtbag. He liked women, gambling, and he liked going on jackal hunts in the woods. But now that he was king, he was like, oh, okay. Like looking at the kind of just like snake's nest all around him. This is giving me, um, you know, this is like a thousand years later. But like how it was when Cleopatra, you remember her and her family and they all kept killing each other? Just like no one could trust anyone. He's like, I need, like, I'm going to clearly be the next one tied to rocks and surround the river unless I figure out some good alliances here. He saw and knew that he would get um, political legitimacy um, and also the support of the powerful Shahis if he married 26-year-old Dida. And the family was like, okay, cool. And so the marriage was arranged and our girl, Dida comes to Kashmir. She went to the beautiful city of Srinagar, which if you look at pictures, it's Kashmir in general, just like the picturesque, the way that it looks, like the mountains and the valleys, Srinagar itself. It's a beautiful place. And so she would have arrived and she's just like, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to become an icon. I imagine she thinks to herself, spoiler, she does. But anyway, she arrives. She's just like, this is cool. I don't know, is she being carried by Valga? Maybe, I don't know. So she showed up and everyone's just like, okay, who's this like 26-year-old person with some sort of like leg disability, whatever. But to the surprise of basically everyone, Kasimagupta met her and fell in love with her so hard and so obviously that in fact, he started to be become known to the people of Kashmir, his subjects. So they started calling him Didakshima, which effectively means like, like Ditta's pet, like person obsessed with Ditta, like person who is in love with Ditta. So Kasimagupta, a.k.a. Didakshima, loves his new wife. Um, and this is where you kind of get the sense of like Ditta was a cool person. Like, and he maybe, you know, we think like who is good enough for her, but it's like, okay, like someone who becomes so besotted with her that like is, even though he's a king, people start calling him that. It's like, okay, I feel like, this is what Dida deserves. So what is the deal with this relationship? There are options here and more than one can be true at the same time. Firstly, um, he was just totally smitten with Dida, and who can blame him as we're going to see. She was a great person. And again, like Cleopatra vibes where like, I don't know what she looked like. And I don't think Kalhana writes about that because he had more important things to talk about. But I feel like it must just be like a, like a star quality, like that level of charisma where just people just are besotted by her when they meet her and including luckily her husband Kasima Gupta um so bear in mind that she was great and of course he fell in love with her and what could be true at the same time is like he knew who her grandparents were like the Shahi family who were really powerful and he wanted to stick up to them so by being really good to their granddaughter maybe would make them work harder to like protect him slash her so both things can be true. 
Oh, and then also, because this always happens, and this is where it's just like, welcome to vulgar history. Uh, there were obviously rumors that Ditto was a witch who had put him under a spell, and that's why he loved her so much. Um, which I'm going to guess is because of the physical disability thing. Like, again, I don't mean to like, I'm not like putting in suspense for this. Like, there's stuff later about another person with a physical disability. Actually, no, someone who was from before. We're going to have a flashback moment in a bit. This was a culture and time in which people with physical disabilities were not accepted. So people were like, why would the king be so in love with this woman who maybe has like a leg issue? I guess she must be a witch who put him under a spell. Um, so mark that off on your bingo cards. Anyway, he had oh, also mark this off on your bingo cards, a coin minting moment. So Kasima Gupta had coins minted. And just in this era, from what I gleaned from reading about all of this slash just the coin listings you can find if you're like a, you know, antiques coin collector. There was a lot of coins coming out of this place in time because who the king was kept changing and a way to be like, I'm the king now. And everyone's like, are you though? Is to like make coins with your name on it. And everyone's like, well, it says it on the coin. I guess you are the king. So Kasima Gupta had coins minted with not just his name on it, but did his name also, which speaks to how much he loved her and or how important she was. So the fact that she was influencing him to this extent made some people upset because this stuff always makes some people upset. Um, one of the people who was upset was enter an important um, secondary character, Felguna, who was the prime minister. And in fact, he was the father of a woman named Chandra Leka, who was also married to Kasima Gupta. So side note, polygamy was a thing that happened in this culture. Don't worry about it. It was not unusual for king in this place and time to have more than one wife. But guess whose name was not on the coins? Chandra Leka. Um, which I guess maybe made it also even more interesting how much he valued Ditta. So Ditta gave birth to a son whose name was Abhimanyu, and her grandfather, the powerful Bhima Shahi, visited Kashmir to see his great-grandson and to build a temple in his honor. And side note, this family, as you will see, is all about building temples in honor of various people. That was their love language. Um, and everything is cool for five years. Apparently, and I mean, frankly, for like a king in Kashmir to last five years seems good. Like, good for you, Kasima Gupta. But then, when Kasima Gupta was one of, on one of his beloved jackal hunts, he caught a violent fever and he died. So, Ditta widowed, and so she immediately hid her son to protect him from being murdered because um, young boy kings got murdered, as we know, <laughs> like um, her son's grandfather. So, and it was probably pretty likely that um, the son might be murdered. So, like, good instincts did a. She was on her own now. Like, he had been so, he'd loved her so much and he supported her so much, but now he was gone and she was just kind of like, who can I trust? Who can I lean on here? So, everyone gathered together for Kasima Gupta's last rites or his funeral. Um, and there was a great pressure on Ditta to throw herself along with. Kasima Gupta's other wives onto the burning funeral pyre of his dead corpse. And so that is a thing that's called sati. And we're going to need to take a little side note to talk about that. So this is a custom where a widow throws herself on the burning pyre of her dead husband in order to kill herself. There's a whole other conversation about sati in like not in 10th 
century Kashmir, like in post-colonial India in like 20th, 21st century. Like this is a whole, we're talking about 10th century Kashmir. And in 10th century Kashmir, sati was very prevalent and culturally expected. Kalhana, and just, yeah, so Kalhana did not support this as a tradition. So it's a thing that some people did. Um, Not everybody, not everybody was expected to do it. Um, So Kalhana, our our man on the ground, um, he explained that even though he did not personally support it, the custom at this time, did his era, was so deep-rooted in the ruling families of Kashmir that not only like the people who did this, who like died by throwing themselves on the burning pyre of men. So it wasn't just wives who did it, but in this era, did his era, but also concubines would do this. Mothers would do this. Sisters, sisters-in-law, which this all sucks. I don't want to make light of it. This is a horrible thing, but the point where it's like, oh, your brother-in-law died. Like now you have to die. It's like sister-in-law. Anyway, during this like big trend um kalhana reports in this era ministers servants and nurses um would burn themselves when their like king or whatever head of the household died he also says one time literally a cat like a feline animal out of affection for its dead master voluntarily threw itself onto the funeral pyre so people are just like this is what was happening like and if you're expecting like the cats and the sisters-in-law and like housemaids to all do it then like of course the wife is expected to and especially the like main wife which did a seem to be so she was age 31 and it was very culturally expected that she was going to throw herself on Kasima Gupta's funeral pyre and die the Damaras would have been especially wanting her to do that because they lived for drama but Dida was like I'm gonna pass like no thanks on the sati and the thing is, she had historical precedent to support her reasoning for staying alive. She said she wanted, to, she had to stay alive to protect her young son, who was the new king. And the historical precedent she had for this was recent enough. She must have known that this happened. And what happened about 50 years earlier was another widowed queen had refused sati for the same reason. And that person was Rani Sugantha. And this is our flashback moment. Rani Sugantha. So, again, this is like 50 years pre-Dida, there was this person. So Sugantha, like Dida, had been the daughter of a king who was then married to the king of Kashmir, who then, um, oh, I didn't write down his name. Anyway, she married who, who the king of Kashmir was at that moment. And that was like a decent reign. Her husband, the king, reigned for about 15 years. And then when he died, it was expected Sugantha would commit sati, but she refused, saying she had to stay alive to act as regent to her son, who is the new boy king, and his name was Gopalavarman. Like so many other queen regents we've looked at on this podcast, again, looking at you, Fredegand, Brunhilde. Sugantha was more than capable at managing the affairs of the kingdom while the king was literally a son who, like, I don't know, played with trucks or whatever. There were rumors that she was promiscuous, which seems unlikely given the culture she was living in and the position she was in. But given that the Damaras hated her and wanted to ruin her reputation. Um, so, of course, there were these rumors that she was just like this crazy. What was her name? The one um, from the Agrippina story. I can hear you all yelling at me. Or imagine you are. You know, remember when there was like the wife and then she like theoretically had the like having sex contest. Like people are Messalina. 
people are just like, oh, she's just like this Messalina type person. And Sugantha's just like, I'm just trying to rule the country. Get off my back, Damras. Anyway, one rumor, which maybe it's true, is that she had an affair with her treasury minister who allegedly took on king-like powers. So Sugantha was like the regent. The son was technically the king, but this guy, the treasury minister was maybe sort of like manipulating her to get more power. For sure, he was a shady guy. For instance, he stole state treasures. So Sugantha's son started investigating the treasury minister. Um, The treasury minister heard about this, so he hired someone to assassinate the king via witchcraft, as you do. So it's like hiring an assassin who knows witchcraft. Love it. So the king, in fact, coincidentally, or witchcraft, died of a fever. um, And then the alleged witch assassin died by suicide after his involvement became known. I guess that was more. He knew his punishment would be really bad. So anyway, he died. Um, The son is dead. The next king was Sugantha's next son. Or I guess it could have been a different wife's son. Anyway, another little boy became the new king, but he died mysteriously after 10 days. Um, The lack of a new heir caused even more chaos in Kashmir. The Damaras were just like loving it, started plotting a coup. Um, So a group of decision makers, this sort of meeting, this like grand jury was called, that's called the Mahapanchiat. And so it was kind of like leaders from all different parts of the land came together and they voted who should be our new monarch and because Sugantha had been effectively leading for a couple years and she was quite popular among the people she was proclaimed to be in charge and so to make it all official I mean you know what she did coin minting so she had coins minted that say Sri Sugantha Diva so unlike the title Rani which is always applied to women and mean is a political title meaning queen um Sri the prefix is a religious term usually given to saints and gurus and almost never to a woman. So by putting Sri Sukanta Diva on the coins, she was making it clear that she was not just the king's mother or the king's wife, but basically the king. So this is like, who is the one? I'm sorry, I promise I prepared for these podcasts, but just things occur to me. Was it the one, was it Hatshepsut in ancient Egypt? Haven't done on the podcast, but I feel like you guys might know. Who wore the like sticky on like beard because she's like yeah i'm a woman but i'm also the king like there's been other stories like this too is it ethelflaed where it's like the word queen only meant like wife of so if you're in charge then you're called the king guess what there's going to be like at least two more stories this season where women do a similar thing where they're just like i am king now So the thing is, part of why they voted her in and potentially part of why she agreed to do it, because I don't know how ambitious she was, was because Sugentha's daughter-in-law was pregnant. So this is the widow of her son who died. Um, And presumably this unborn child could be the new king and would replace Sugentha when he was born and she could go on and be regent or whatever afterwards. But then, sadly, the birth, it was a stillbirth. So Sugentha was now the monarch with no heir. And she looked around and she's like, okay, um... I get the sense that she maybe didn't want to be the monarch, but she's like, okay, what if I, my heir could be one of my relatives who is a man who is nicknamed Pengu, which is a Sanskrit word that means lame because like Ditta, this guy had some sort of physical disability. The Damras didn't support this choice because of his disability and they were the worst. In fact, they disliked this suggestion so much that they dethroned Sugantha 
and in her place, they put Pangu's son, Partha, who is 10 years old, and Sugantha went into exile eight years later. She had gathered enough allies together that she could wage a war against Partha to try and become monarch again. There was a fierce battle, but her side lost, and she was captured, imprisoned, and killed. Kalhana really summarizes this all up when he wrote in his book, Strange are the ways of fate, ever falling and rising. So Ditta would have known what happened to her, but she also knew that some things had gone right for Sugantha. Like, if she was able to stay on top of the political situation and she stayed on as regent, maybe she would fare better than Sugantha. So the issue is, of course, the Damaras and other factions at royal court. And Ditta figured out, like, okay, I need to just, like, be on top of this and be politically savvy and not get myself murdered or my son usurped. Her son, Epimanu, was crowned as the new king. She was installed as the regent. If you remember, the prime minister in her era was Falguna. Remember, his daughter had also been married to Kasima Gupta. Don't know if his daughter um, jumped in the fire or not. But anyway, I'm going to assume she did. Falguna was not a fan of Ditta's and he was like, ooh, like, I'm just going to like flee the city in fear of my life and hide away somewhere because Ditta is in charge now and she hates me. Um, and frankly, yeah, because <laughs> Ditta was suspicious of everybody, obviously, because nobody was trustworthy at all, clearly. Um, this is one of the situations where paranoia was like the best call and a reasonable response to what was going on. Falguna leaving town, also good instinct because we're going to get to this, but Ditta was not afraid of murdering her enemies. So she faced a direct challenge from her sister-in-law's adult sons. So that's her sister-in-law's, that would be Kasima Gupta's sister's son. I don't know why this didn't just say her nephews. Anyway, two adult sons gathered allies and surrounded her, Ditta, like literally surrounded her when she was just visiting a temple with her son. Ditta managed to get her son taken off somewhere safely, and then she asked to negotiate. And this is where, I know I've been saying she's cool, but like we haven't seen her do stuff until this moment. So she was just like, okay, angry mob who wants to like usurp and or murder me, like let's just talk this through. So she did have a helper with her, was, um, I think it's her prime minister, who is a person named Naravahana, who is very loyal to her, smart. During the negotiations, she and he managed to get everyone to calm down through a combination of just like being like, mm, that sucks, I'm so sorry for you, slash also bribing some others where like empathy didn't really work. And then after this, she ruthlessly had many of the rebels killed, including her, the nephews, but she forgave some others who she thought would be of use to her. So this is, we're going to see this in action several times where Ditta is just like in a situation and she's like, okay, who can I get to switch sides to my side? Um, and some people will do that through bribery. Some people will do that just through like emotional manipulation. And then whoever's left, she's just like, and I'm going to murder the rest because guess what? If I don't do that, they will murder me. So this is like, again, like a, like a Cleopatra type situation where it's just like, or Fredigan too, Right. Where it's just like, she did what she did to survive and stay in power. And this is what she had to do. And guess what? She survived and stayed in power. So, goal achieved. One of the people who she forgave in this instance, 
um, one of the rebels who she was just like, okay, if I forgive you, will you like be in my side? And he was like, yes. Um, was a person, a warrior named Yashod Hara. But he later started a revolt against her because he was mad this one time when he returned from a successful war mission and she didn't thank him enough or something like that. Like, get over yourself. The Damaras, who live for drama, joined with him against her because they're just like flippy flopping around like who they're going to be on what side because i t- like the worst like I, these ugh. fucking hate these guys so this was thus far the toughest revolt that did a faced but she managed to suppress it with the help of her pal naravahana and another minister named raka um and again with her just kind of like ruthlessness like the rebels and their relatives were all brutally killed and like, frankly, in this situation, if you want people to stop rebelling against you, that is what she saw she had to do. Kalhana wrote about this victory. He's such a good writer. The lame queen whom no one had thought capable of stepping over a cow's footprint got over the host of her enemies, just as Hanuman got over the ocean. So just to fully understand this, if you're not familiar with the story of Hanuman, and the ocean. So Hanuman is a Hindu god and one of the important monkey god. Uh, One of the important things he did is he flew over the ocean. To do this, he increased in size and with a great roar, leapt up to the skies. As his gigantic shadow fell on the waters of the ocean, nature rose to help him. The sun reduced its heat, the moon showered its bright light, and the wind helped keep him afloat. So when Kalhana compares Ditta to Hanuman, it's not just being like, oh yeah, she like got over her enemies so easily good for her he's saying like no he was comparing her to like a god who did something amazing and she was an icon who continued to do amazing things this section of my notes i call did it continues being great so she was still mistrustful of everyone obviously why would she suddenly not be like this had kept her alive to this point um, she started to get concerned when her right-hand man, Naravahana, started becoming more powerful and important. She's like, oh, is this, is he going to betray me? So she did kind of her version of ghosting him, which in 10th century Kashmir was, she just started favoring other courtiers. And this is part of the reason why um, Ditta is sometimes called, what is she called? It's like, people compare her to Catherine the Great. They call her like the Catherine of India or something like that, because of how Catherine the Great would favor courtiers over some others and i'm trying to look up what she was called and my cat is on my keyboard so just like hang on a sec these are the high production values that you all come here for yeah she's called the catherine of Kashmir, aka the witch queen anyway so i guess this is the thing where it's just like if you can't trust 99 percent of the people around you like when the one percent is Maybe okay, you're like, mm, but can I trust him? Anyway, so she ghosted him. Naravahana was brokenhearted and died by suicide. Shortly after that, her other main minister, Raka, also died. Not sure of what. Um, I'm going to always just assume poison, but could be lots of things. Anyway, so she was left without a man. And this isn't like, you know, Dida is a strong, independent woman, obviously. But like when you're in this extremely... Um, misogynistic situation well i don't know if it's misogynistic but she was in a situation where like women in power were not a normal thing and there's a lot of men around who want to take a rid of her like she needed like a man helper so 
And she knew that without a man by her side, that Damaras would unite against her. Like, because they would take any excuse. So she was just like, who can be my helper? And then, you'll never believe this. I love this as a twist. So do you remember in the story of Margaret of Anjou? Remember when Margaret of Anjou was like enemies with Warwick, but then later she like teamed up with Warwick when Warwick got mad at the king? This is just like that. Because Ditto was just like, who can be my like guy who's my right hand guy, my guy Friday? And she's like, you know who it's going to be? Falguna, the previous prime minister who like fled town, who like literally fled town when she gained power because he knew she would kill him. She's like, what if I get Falguna? Because the Damaras like him, like he knows everybody. He's like been prime minister. So she summoned him back to town, which I feel like was probably... A pretty intense situation i'm picturing him like living off the grid like dexter in the finale the first finale of dexter just like lumberjack like anyway he came back to town he's just like a is like they're like did it wants you to be prime minister again he's like or does she want to murder me but anyway he came back and guess what he was a great helper to her he persuaded the dumbest to cool off she made a good call this is one of the things she was good at was finding choosing who would be her good lieutenants but then her son, Abimanu, aged 22, died. I, I did not write down of what, but we're going to guess it's 50-50, either some sort of plague or murder. Anyway, he's dead. His heir, he's 22, so he had a son. Um, his son was called Nandigupta, who was crowned the new child king, but because Nandigupta was a child, did it continue on as regent in that very Brunhilde sort of manner. But she's obviously very upset about her son's death. And she spent a year just like in her grief, just like commissioning buildings because that is the Shahi way she built. So her son was called Abimanyu. So she built a temple and a town named after him. Um, she also built a temple and a town named after her. I'm oh, sorry, and then another temple named after her. Um, this is now called the Didmar area of Srinagar. She also commissioned a building, I think around this time, in honor of Valga, the helper who carried her around, called the Valgamath. But um, by one estimate, she laid 64 foundations. So just like the vivid, like physical reality of her grief was expressed through this orgy of building, commissioning. And then her grandson, Nandagupta, fell sick and he also died. And again, plague or murder I don't know. He was succeeded by a third younger brother who also died. This is getting suspicious. So then did a so then another another grandson um became king Bamagupta. At this point, Dida was again accused of witchcraft and bringing about their deaths. I would also suggest was she or someone else literally just killing them not in witchcraft but just with like murder ways anyway did a you know still lots of people suspicious of her but she was still in power and then speaking of death felguna died i have to i have to assume there's some sort of plague going around like this is a lot of people to all die all in a row i'm gonna guess dysentery just so you can mark that square off on your bingo cards but could have been anything anyway but then twist so did is just like fuck i need like a man again but guess who came on the town a new man came on the scene named Tunga. Tunga 
was a Casa Buffalo herdsman from Punch who had come to Kashmir with his brothers and was employed in her government as a letter carrier. She was impressed by his capabilities. I mean, at carrying letters? I don't know. I have to assume he was also really hot. Maybe. Um, Dida started promoting him. She's just like, whoa, I don't know what the sequence of jobs was, but it ended up with him, Tunga, becoming prime minister slash commander of the armies. So the trajectory from like Buffalo herdsman, letter carrier, prime minister speaks to his abilities, I guess. But also at this point, I think we all trust Dida can spot when someone has talent. She's not just like promoting rando anybody. He was widely considered to be her lover. And frankly, I hope he was good for both of them. Meanwhile, the king was her grandson, Bhima Gupta, who was getting close to being an adult, and he was getting more interested in, like, administration and, like, didn't want Dida to be, like, doing all the work all the time. And then, just as he started to be like, I want to, like, emancipate myself from Dida, he died in mysterious circumstances. Um, Kalhana says, there's a rumor that Dida imprisoned and tortured him to death so she wouldn't have to give up power, which is, like, quite a specific rumor if i was Ditta and i wanted to get rid of him i wouldn't imprison and torture him to death i would just either hire a witch assassin or just like secretly poison him anyway did Ditta kill all of her grandsons did she kill even one of her grandsons you know it's 50 50 maybe uh whether she killed him or not she took over after him and like sugantha before her she was not just rani Ditta, she's now sri Ditta devi and had the coins minted to prove it. That's right. This is a three-coin minting moment episode. And then, for the next 22 years, she continued on as a ruler. I love this as just, like, how much stuff happened, like, every day for the last little bit. And then it's like, and then 22 years, everything is fine. And honestly, like, the world we are all living in right now, I would love nothing more than for the next part of my personal biography to be like, and then for the next 22 years... Like, nothing interesting happened. I would love that for all of us. But I mean, I'm sure lots of interesting things happened. Did it quash rebellions by using her standard combination of bribes, um, murdering people? She did what she had to do, but I think she would just get more and more powerful the longer she was in power, right? And that would make people less likely to rebel against her? You would think. Um, In this instance, I think that's true. But there's some other people this season where you would think, but then in fact... When the woman in power got older, that made people more bold. Anyway, Kalhana writes about this 22-year period. So, those treacherous ministers who for 60 years had robbed kings from King Gopala to Abhimanyu of their dignity, lives, and riches were quickly exterminated by the energy of Queen Ditta. Like, she, like, things had been so chaotic in Kashmir for so long, 60 years, according to Kalhana. And then Ditta was just like, here's what's going on. I'm going to just, like, clean this place up. And that is what she did. Don't want to lose sight of the fact that it was still very unusual um, to have a woman ruler in this time and place. Like, although, like there have been Sugantha and another female ruler before her, which is more than a lot of other regions of the world had had by then. Um, this is still very rare and unusual. So, and like the culture of this era. Um, so for instance... There's an epic called the Mahabharata, which is a famous Sanskrit epic that had been written about 600 years before this. And it said, 
The country where a woman, a child, or a gambler rules sinks helplessly as a stone raft in the river. So the fact that these rulers had been all like little boys with her as the regent was kind of not. This is like the sort of stuff the Damaras would be like, mm, yeah, this book says this, so women shouldn't be a ruler, etc. And yet, Dida brought about a period of stability Kashmir had not seen in generations because she was good at her job and her buffalo herding lover was right by her side Tunga being her prime minister helping to take down potential rebellions because remember he was also captain of the army what couldn't this guy do he was like he was the jungkook of this era he was her golden maknae i didn't mention but in hiatus between seasons i've become really into bts anyway did it had no literal heirs left because of the mysterious deaths of all three of her grandsons so she had to choose an heir and unlike Sugantha, she wasn't just like how about this one person and the damaras like get rid of her she's like here's what i'm gonna do and it's a great story so she called for many boys from her maternal family the shahis like the more powerful family she called for all the boys from the shahi side of the family and placed a heap of fruit in front of them and she said whoever picks up the most pieces of fruit will be my heir most of the boys started just grabbing the fruit and fighting with one another. But at the end of it, her brother's son, Sam Gramaja, had the most pieces of fruit without actually engaging in any physical fighting. He had managed to incite the other boys to fight while he calmly gathered up the booty. Which, honestly, is a good way to choose an heir. And honestly, like, good choice. So she was impressed by his political acumen and declared him her heir. But then she made Samgramaraja and Tonga swear a holy oath that they would work with each other even after she died. And they all worked together as just kind of this little team. Um, and Ditta just kept being Rani Ditta until she died at age 79 in the year 1003. Like she was never usurped. Nobody took that away from her. She kept on. And after her death, true to their word, Tonga and Samgramaraja continued on. They worked well together. They continued on the stability she had created, which lasted for another 20 years. In fact, Samgramaraja was one of the only kings in Indian history to beat back Mahmud of Ghazni, who attacked Kashmir twice. And Samgramaraja was able to do that because he had this strong army and administration created by Ditta. Legacy. So despite her gender, despite her leg issue, Ditta was able to rule Kashmir with an iron fist for more than four decades. Her rule represents the peak of, unfortunately, her rule represents the peak of women's power in Kashmir. Like there wasn't really another Ditta level in Kashmir history after her. And yeah, it was a sort of situation where it's like, she was the person, the the right characteristics at this time to succeed where so many people other people wouldn't have um in the face of great odds so her political survival skills were tremendous clearly she ruled for what like 40 years um in this like ruthless environment where people are constantly trying to to overthrow her she figured out how to make them not do that um part of that was her really good ability at figuring out who to trust, figuring out who to murder. She created this stability in a very chaotic time and place, which speaks to her skill as just kind of like 
having a goal, manifesting, just like doing what needs to be done to make this happen. And it's all sort of like, you've listened to this podcast, you know my deal. I'm not being like, yeah, murder people. But it's like, if everyone's trying to murder you, then like, yeah, murder those people. It's kind of like for the greater good and the greater good being like 40 years of non-chaos. Like, yeah, she just had to kind of quell some stuff going on. So again, like the only source about her is Kahana's writing. And then that's been interpreted various ways by various different people. Some researchers have found it um, hard to digest how um, ambitious she was, her thirst for power. Some people thought like she was able to control her ministers so well. People were like, is that because she was like having sex with all of them? I would argue if she was having sex with all of them, she would control them worse because they'd all be jealous of each other. So some people were just like, oh, but it's the same thing. It's like pe- when people weren't calling her in her day, like, oh, is she a witch? Like people listen to her and she's a woman. Then researchers were like, oh, people listen to her. So she must have just been like really sexy. And it's like the Cleopatra thing all over again. Like, get over it. She was just awesome and a legend. We stan. Um, and frankly, what in men would be admirable ambition and displays of power become in her like a failing and an evil, like women shouldn't be like this, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, who gets the last laugh is like this fucking woman who like, Stayed on the throne until she died. Like, no one ever managed to get rid of her. I love her. So, it's time to give her... Oh, before we get to the score, there's a new little section. So, if you've been following the Instagram stories, which is kind of where a lot of... Slash all of my sort of interaction has been lately with you, the Tits Out Brigade. In preparing this season, I came across some people who I thought were good, helpful people. So, so often these stories are about like a woman or a person who is just like all on their own and they have to figure it all out themselves and everyone's betraying and being terrible to them. But sometimes a person is good and helpful. And so this is, I'm not going to have this in every episode, God knows, but in some episodes I will bestow the Lady Jane Seymour Memorial Award for Outstanding Supporting Performance. Lady Jane Seymour just to remind you, not the one who married King Henry VIII, Lady Jane Seymour, was the best friend of Catherine Gray. And she was the one who helped Catherine Gray send the sexy letters back and forth with Ned. Um, she was the one who like helped arrange the super secret sexy wedding. I believe Lady Jane Seymour was the one who like literally ran outside, grabbed a priest, dragged him inside, and made him do the super secret sexy wedding. Like, above and beyond, Lady Jane Seymour. Like, BFF Hall of Fame, but also... She's now the namesake for the Lady Jane Seymour Memorial Award for Outstanding Supporting Performance. Now, I've only thought of one other person besides her who would get it, and that is Thomas Keyes, who was the husband of Lady Mary Gray. Remember, she was very short and he was very tall. And then he was put in the little jail cell and his arms and legs were too long and he was so uncomfortable. And all he wanted to do was love her. Anyway, he gets that too because I don't know exactly what the qualifications are for this but it's basically like you need to be like supportive of the main character of the podcast and also like go to the, your deathbed never having betrayed them so lady jane seymour thomas keys and i am going to include tunga in here as well because he just came on the scene 
did us saw his potential. He lived up to that potential. He swore an oath to always be, um, to work with her heir. And then he did like Tunga, I feel like was there for her in a way that I really appreciate. So Thomas Keyes, Tunga, well done. Kasima Gupta, I considered, but he wasn't in the story long enough to really do anything. But I do appreciate that he loved her so much and put her on coins. That really set her up for success later on. So now it's time for the Fredigand Memorial Scandaliciousness scale. The first category is Scandaliciousness. So this is often like it's did somebody have secret, like secret sexy affairs? Did somebody have um, secret scandals was there espionage involved was there um you know that level of stuff and with Ditta, it's like we don't know like there's one source it's kalhana who like tells it like it is big fan of kalhana but like did she have affairs maybe did she murder all of her grandsons with witchcraft like potentially but like we don't know that she did so like that's not and honestly, in terms of scandaliciousness, like, you'd have to do more than that to get a 10 in scandaliciousness. I'm going to give her, respectfully, given that I think a lot of the rumors about her were not true, even though I do think being called the witch queen is cool, I'm going to give her a 6 for scandaliciousness, because it's not, there's a potential that some scandaliciousness was there, but, um, you know, we don't know that she did it for sure. Uh, scheminess in some of the stories that's just like did this person like scheme their way through like you know royal court um, with gossip reasons but for Ditta and for other people who like Fredigan like people who are literal queens like her schemes are also it's like her ambitions and her plans and like what did she do and so all the stuff like the fact that the people surrounded her and her son and they're like we want to be king now and she's like mm, but do you and then she like used her words slash her money to convince and bribe them to not rebel against her and then she killed all the people too like i am comfortable giving her a very high score in scheminess because had she not had a high level of scheminess she would not have reigned for as long as she did in the situation she was in i oh i'm mm, i'm gonna give her 9.5 9.5 for scheminess what's keeping it from a 10 is just like to, I just, and this isn't her fault, and this is not Kalhana's fault, but there's just not enough examples of specific things she did to give her a full 10. But 9.5, admirable score. Her significance, and this is this season especially, like I'm looking at regions of the world that I have not studied before up until now. So I don't know enough about that region and the history of the Kashmir region slash India slash the Himalayas like to be able to say like what is the effect of her reign in today's world but what I will say is what was the effect of her reign in her world which was monumental I think to go from 60 years of just chaos with the Damaras and she brought 40 years of stability is like highly significant than the fact that because of the infrastructure she had set up her heir was able to to stop those invasions like this is a long time ago so I'm not going to like where in the world is there somebody who like was a king in the 10th century and like literally the effects are still being felt I don't know maybe someone I feel her significance was very good I'm gonna give her 
a 7.5 for significance. I don't know. You know what? Because there's still like that part of the town that's called like Did, Didda something. Like she built all those buildings. The buildings that are significant. Eight. I'll give her an eight for significance. The sexism bonus is the bonus points for how much did being a woman hold her back. And this is tricky because um, she was not held back. Like she found ways to like scoot and like dodge and like achieve all this stuff even though women were not set up for success in this culture at the same time. Like, was she pressured to throw herself onto her husband's burning corpse? Like, yes. Like, were people upset when she didn't do that? Yes. Like, did people keep trying to usurp her power because she was a woman? Yes. So she had, like, it's like a higher level of challenge for her as a woman ruler on top of the fact that it was already challenging for anyone to be a ruler as evidenced by the fact that people kept usurping kings every year so she achieved everything she did despite sexism um sexism did not bring her down in the way it did some of the other stories but she encountered a lot of it but that's why everyone gets automatically a five i'm gonna say for sexism 6.5 and then i just need to quickly do some math oh my god that's a 30 30 Oh my god, I'm really excited for her. This makes me really happy. You might think, Anne, don't you figure out these scores beforehand? No, it's all about vibes for me. But also, I'm not good at math. And so like adding, I can't add in my head. So I really, I truly don't know where they're going to land until I do the math. So Ronnie Ditta, I love that she's at a 30. I love that she was so, to me, like Fredigan level, I knew nothing about her, but even beyond Fredigan level, because I'd heard of the Franks before and I did not know anything about Kashmiri history. Ronnie did it has a 30. So that's, let's see, who else is a 30? Empress Matilda has a 30. Juana, the first of Castile, has a 30. Does this get her? Yeah, she's in the top 10. She's in the top 10. Like we're already, it's episode one of season five and we're already in top 10 territory. Like this season is going to be, it's going to be a great season. The the women and other people who are looking at this season, all of whom suggested by you, like you get it. Like the suggestions you've given me have been great. Like it was, I've got a really long list of people to do in other later seasons. You know what I'm looking for and you're suggesting people who are incredible. So as evidenced by this. Um, so again, uh, just thank you to to Simran from the Tits Out Brigade, honestly, who was just like, did it would be great. And I'm like, you know what? An icon, an icon for all of us. So I also wanted to just say that the inspiration for this season of the show, Scandalousness Without Borders, Tits Out Sans Frontier, is my very silly tribute to a very real organization called Doctors Without Borders, Medicine Sans Frontier. This is a worldwide movement that provides medical assistance to people affected by conflict, epidemics, disasters, or exclusion from healthcare. Their actions are guided by medical ethics and the principles of impartiality, independence, and neutrality. So truly without borders, they just go wherever medical help is needed. And they have worked, and I believe are still working, in places including Kashmir. So more than 1,000 years after Ditta lived there, the region is today facing lots of really horrific violence and conflict. 
So you can visit their website at msf.org or click the link in today's show notes to learn more about Doctors Without Borders and or to donate to this organization. Speaking of websites, I have one now. You can go to vulgarhistory.com for show notes. Um, I'll be putting up the references for every episode there as well as links to the store. And there's also a contact button so you can send me a message to suggest somebody who you think I would like to talk about on the podcast. And thank you to everybody who already has suggested people. Please know that I have an extremely long spreadsheet. And so if I haven't gotten to talking about the person you suggested, that doesn't mean I'll never do them. That just means there's a lot of names on the list, but I'm happy to add more names to the list. So please, um, yeah, you can contact me there or also send me DMs on Instagram. And... Uh, the store also has been revitalized for season five. So if you go to vulgarhistory.store, I'm going to be putting out, I don't know if there'll be like a new design per episode, but there's definitely at least one new one there so far, which is inspired by the overarching philosophy of this season. So there's a design there inspired by Tits Out Brigade member Kelly. And the slogan is Tits Out is for everybody. Another way to support me slash this podcast is wherever you're listening to this podcast is to give it the five-star rating and also put in a little review. And if you're listening to it on a platform where there's not a place to put a review, then like just go to iTunes, which is a place where you can do reviews and just like put one there. Like it just really helps other people find out about the podcast. The podcast has obviously been doing amazing. Lots of people listening. I'm still blown away with how many people are listening and where you are in the world but you know what like ditta i'm never satisfied with with the small ambition like i want to get vulgar history to the top of the charts so anyway that really helps and that's the thing you can do without spending any money at all um but if you want to spend money <laughs> to help me also there's the patreon so if you go to patreon.com slash ann foster writer that's where you can pledge some monthly money and in exchange you get special benefits, um, like you get early access to podcasts. I send out little email kind of newsletters every now and then. And then the main thing is if you pledge at the Gloriano's level, which is $5 per month, although I'm in Canada, I don't, it might be a different amount in your country, equivalent Canadian $5 a month, you get the extra podcasts. That's what I do. So this asshole, so every month I do a podcast about some man who is terrible. I just did one about last month about, or I forget when you're listening to this versus when I am recording this. Recently I've done Henry VIII. And then I also did Aristotle. And also on Patreon, that's where you can get the Vulgar Peace Theater um, movie discussions with me, Lana Wood Johnson and Alison Epstein. So, so far of those, we've done Shakespeare in Love. Um, on the Patreon, there's Amadeus. And... Yeah, you can keep up with the podcast on Instagram, Vulgar History Pod, Twitter at Vulgar History. And if for some reason you feel like you want to email me, you can um, by emailing vulgarhistorypod at gmail.com. And I'm so excited to be back. I'm so excited to be back. It's great to be as having so much fun researching, um, as having so much fun like making my notes up. I'm having so much fun talking. So as forever, I mean, I started this podcast in like... I think it was like October 2019. So we had like 1.5 seasons before it's like, hey, guess what? COVID. And so this has really been a thing that's keeping me more sane 
during COVID to have this to focus on. I hope it's bringing joy into your lives. And I started saying this a while ago and I still wholeheartedly believe it because um, uh, masks are good and make people not get sick. So I hope you're all keeping your masks on. I hope you're keeping your tits out, um, be that literal and or metaphorical and or both. Um, I'll talk to you all next time. This is going to be a fun season and yeah, talk soon. Wander with us into a world of magic. Do you lack magic? Ever since I was born, I could hear the spirits of the other world. Where old stories take on a new life. If you break even one of these conditions, the consequence is death. And the world is teeming with possibilities. It's midnight, girls! They're here! Get ready to change! Well, for the last time, we're not kissing, Fritz! Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with as you've never heard them before. You are no more than a demon! Okay, Gown. Let's do this. And reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. Ready for your next adventure? Then we'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales.